0: You're at that dumbest of dumb ages, you know, lots of testosterone and very little IQ. um, Yeah, Um, and
1: to great confidence. You know, like seriously. (laughs) All new episode of the Talk Can Audio podcast. My name is Matt Robinson. Thank you so much for checking out this edition of the show. Make sure you're following along on social media. They are uh, e- expanding. They are exploding. I don't know if you're on Threads now or Blue Sky or wherever it is. We are at Talk Can Audio churning out mediocre content. Uh, joining me back in the studio today for what's become a bit of an annual summer tradition here, the voice of the Ottawa Senators is here, Dean Brown. What's happening?
0: Uh, not much, Matt, just um, plowing through summer, getting ready for hockey to start again in yeah. a month and a half and, you know, the normal stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: okay. Uh, every
0: every time we do this, you're just coming back from the cottage and true. I'm just starting to think about training camp. It's kind of like exactly the same thing every year. We start from the same level.
1: Yeah, well, and this is actually the first thing I was going to ask you about, and, and there's a few different things I want to touch mm-hmm. on here, but- how long into your process, right? After the season ends, I'm sure there's at least a week or two where you're like, if, if I never have to see another morning skate, mm-hmm. that'd be just fine. How long before you start thinking about opening up the notebook again and looking ahead at some new names in the, around the team and, and you know, starting to get back yeah, into yeah.
0: it. Well, first of all, I'm ne- when I, when the season ends, I'm never tired of it. Like I'm never, I'm, I'm really lucky and i I know some people say this and it's, it's bold, but it really is true, um, I'm never looking forward to the end of the season. If if they would play into the middle of July, I would love that. That would that would be great for me. So um, I always miss it when it's over. The next day I miss not going to the rink and being there for a morning skate. And I know, you know, even people in our business say, morning skates, like how many? Well, you know, <laughs> for me, um, I love morning skates. And it's not so much about the skate. It's, you know... You're sitting in the stands, you're watching the skate, and you're talking with everybody else who's up there, the rest yeah. of the media. If it's on a game day, there's people in from out of town, friends of yours who cover the other team, and you get a chance to catch up with them, and you get lots of information. That's when you share a lot of information. So I've never been one that begrudged morning skates, and I know a lot of people do, yeah. um, but um, I, I I, don't. I, I, I think it's a great tool for me to gather information, and I just like being able to... You know, reconnect um, with my friends uh, in in the business and share stories and catch up on who's doing what and, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. And as far as getting ready for the next season, I'm uh, like uh, – um, I'm kind of anal with that stuff. You, you know, I'm kind of uh, – preparation for me is kind of – it's not a chore. I, I love it. So – Basically, when the when the Stanley Cup is over, um, that's when I start to build my templates for each team for the next year. And, you know, you're only doing, you know, cursory stuff because the rosters aren't even sure. close to being set. Free agency hasn't started then. But that's stuff you can add. So I start because I have a template for each team so that during the season um, when Ottawa's playing that team, I just basically back up that template and make adjustments for guys who've been called up or sent down and stuff like that. And you know then i'm i'm ready to go but basically i have my template for each team done before the season starts right so now in august I basically now from here on in now that free agency's over and there still will be some teams that add a player you know and, and that's, that's fine you can do that before each game but now basically what I do is because I'm in my office every day just checking in because I, I check in on international who's signed where who's going to Europe just guys who used to be senators or guys I know or you know just I, I'm in my office checking up on those things anyway mm-hmm. so starting now now is when I try to build or as close to uh, as I can finish um, all the teams in August so basically I just tried it's a hectic schedule I just plunk away and do one a day Right, and just because I'm in my office every day anyway, I just do one a day um, if, for the for the amount that I do this time of year. Because obviously, there's lots of stuff you can't yet fill in, yeah. but just to get that basic rudimentary stuff down, it takes you a couple of hours. So I'll spend a couple of hours in the office each day, just plunking away, at it, and I enjoy that. Like it's not something where I have to go. Oh, I got to get in the office. <laughs> like it's it's never it's never drudgery. Um, I love doing it, and so that's kind of the rhythm of. You know, my thing. And then when you get close to training camp starting, then you're looking at, um, as far as prep work goes, preseason is the hardest by far right. because there's so many players, yes. like teams, you know, and so now you're you're expanding all your lists and adding to your stuff, the training camp lists of the teams at Ottawa will be playing in the preseason. <clears throat> so in some cases, you know, you're adding 70 players to your <laughs> list, you know, and then on game day or the day before the game, you're hoping, and usually, usually you can get cooperation from the other team, but you're hoping that they'll give you a list of just the 25 players that are going to travel for the game. Sure. They're only going to play 20, but they're going to bring 25. Yeah. And then that can help you pare that down. And then you basically get ready to do your specific game prep for that game. But preseason is always in that regard, the toughest thing for us because there's so many players. And to be honest with you, you get so little cooperation from the league. Like the, the normal things that happen during the regular season as far as what the league provides in rosters and background, and that doesn't exist in the preseason. And uh, you know even even just a numerical roster that i can hold in my hand <laughs> when i'm doing the game so that you know if i can't remember from memory who Who's 72 <laughs> is by and large the league doesn't provide that yeah. so you know like before before games i'm produ- doing that myself building one myself mm-hmm. so that i ha- cuz i'm still old school I, I even if i don't look at it i need to have a numerical roster in my hand on paper. And sometimes the teams, and I don't know why, I don't know who this benefits, but they'll give you one that has all the defensemen grouped together. Well, when I'm doing a game at full speed, I don't have the time to look down at the sheet and go, okay, the defenseman, what number? Like it has to be numerical. Just give me a numerical list. And believe it or not, that for many teams is very hard to get. Now, we're lucky here the Senators provide that for us, but lots of other teams, when you do a preseason game, they don't provide anything. I mean, nothing.
1: You And as you said, when you need it most, this yeah. is some guy who's going to play in the ECHL exactly. this year. I have no idea yeah. who he is.
0: And, you know, for the teams... I, I get the perspective. I think it's completely wrong, but I get the perspective. It's a preseason game. the stats don't count it's a, but the, but the what they don't understand is we're still expected to do a professional job calling the game. yeah like our we don't our standards don't drop because it's a preseason game. We try to do exactly the same job as we would in a regular season game or sure, a playoff yeah. game. you know you have a, a professional standard you want to maintain and there's you know from some visiting teams. I mean, literally zero support, zero. They don't provide anything. And they just kind of shrug their shoulders. Yeah, yeah, it's preseason, whatever. Best of luck. (laughs) So that's kind of, you know, in the cadence of my year, that's kind of where I am now. I'll start doing that, you know, pick a team a day and... uh, and usually I just do it alphabetically. I, I start with Anaheim and start going. You know? So
1: when you say you put together your own templates, or what's included in that? Is it just statistical or are there little notes that you want to remember, anecdotes about this guy that you might tell in a story? What's involved with the template for uh, each team? The anecdotes are usually
0: added around the time to see if they're still valid. And, right. you know, but the, the te- I should bring one for you sometime. The template is basically the, the top part. The first five lines are last year's record, last year's home record, last year's road record, uh, the power play, how many games, they won in their last five of the last part of the last regular season. Right. How many in the last 10? Power play home power play, road power play, uh, goals for on average per game, goals against, uh, five on five numbers, um, shorthanded goals, home, away, um, penalties, uh, number of number of minors, uh, fighting majors. Like just a, um, what their record is when leading after two periods, what's sure, their record okay. when trailing, for all from the last season. Yeah. So at any time when you know people go, well, how do you remember all the stuff from last year, what are you doing this year? Well, that's all the stuff I keep. And so the stats that I have, and then I have all the players listed with their height, their weight, their age, and then how they how they came to the team. Either they were drafted or traded or picked up on waivers. Mm-hmm. And then below that, uh, I have whatever their stats were for wherever and whomever they played for the year before. Because on game day in Penn, that's when I write in what their stats are for the team they're playing like right now. Right, okay. So – On any given sheet, I can tell you anything about the guy, what the guy did last year and what he's done so far this year. And then on on the margin, on the other side, I have another band and that's where I write stories and anecdotes and little things that I can throw into the broadcast and talk with Gord about and on the backs of each page's. Uh, There's lots of space for that too. And whatever stats are not contained
1: in my stuff that come up and pop up at times, and Mm -hmm. I add those there. Um, Would you spend more time, like do you put the same amount of time into Anaheim that you would into Montreal, one that you're going to see twice a year, one that you're going to see what it might be five or six times a year? It doesn't matter. No. Because, and
0: and the reason for that, Matt, is that you know some people might think that that Montreal-Ottawa game is more important than the Anaheim-Ottawa game. But the reality is... Whoever is listening expects the same level enough, of information yeah. no matter who the opponent is. Yeah. What you know, what if it's a Montreal Ottawa game, but the person who's listening doesn't give a rat's ass about Montreal. They're an Anaheim fan. Sure. They wanna know why I can't tell. You know, we always Gordon and I are the same, we always work on the on the idea that if something happens, if something happens, we have something we can tell you about every player playing. So we have something, whether it's a statistical thing or a story or an anecdote or something about every player playing. Mm. So we're never caught going, well, that's uh, Jimmy Wickler, <laughs> for, you know, as you're trying to you know, get online and get to hockey. <laughs> and he uh, grew up in uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta, sure. you know, uh, you know. so part of being prepared is being prepared to talk about any player, any coach, any manager involved in the game that night. Mm. And so the process of doing a game, there is no difference whatsoever um, for me, based on the team, and what I also get a lot is, you know, Damon, do you, you do the same amount of prep like for a Vancouver game? It starts at 1030, like after the first period. Who's, you know, how many people are even <laughs> listening? I said it doesn't matter how many are listening. Professionally, uh, in my mind, professionally, um, it's not dependent on how many people are listening. Yeah, at 1 o'clock in the morning, there's fewer people listening than normal. But the people who are listening still expect the same level of preparation and delivery that the people at seven o'clock in the east are expecting. I'll be so, honest
1: with you, Dean. I had no idea Vancouver was in the Pacific Division. Whenever Toronto goes <laughs> out there, they just
0: <laughs> play
1: it a few hours early. What? It's, I had no
0: idea Vancouver the was that still, far what? west. What? <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. You know, pe- people assume that you know, like uh, you know, you do d- different levels of preparation based on you know who's going to be. Well, yeah. I, I I guess some people might do that, but Gordon and I aren't those two people. The the level of preparation we have is virtually exactly the same for any game, every game. Right. And that's, I guess that's one of the reasons, I don't know if there's a good or a bad thing, but it's one of the reasons why every game sounds about the same, you know, <laughs> like it's the same amount of preparation, the same amount of determination to do as good a job as you can do. And I don't know, I just, to me, that's just the real joy of doing it, that you can do it well. Uh, or what well, at least what we consider sure the, uh, there's some people who you know who believe that we 're probably the worst pair <laughs> in the history of hockey you know that that's the suge- subjective nature of this job. People yeah. will love you, and p- there's other people who are going to say those those two are so shitty it 's unbelievable you know <laughs> the, those two are the crappy, and that 's the way it is, but what we try to do is um you know, I'm not. I'm not sure we, uh, we we could say we have our A game every game because no one does. But we we strive to you know give it our best B plus uh, effort every night so that right. uh, you know it, uh, anybody who's listening should be able to expect what they're going to get out of uh, good old stupid Dean Gord.
1: <laughs> That's even on Twitter. Um, no, it's uh, as you say. Some people love you, some people hate you. Yeah. That's the nature of the beast, and yeah. and, and it's whatever. always been that way. Yeah, well, of it's course. It's always been that way. It's just now, people have them. Um, a trumpet to uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. well, people. People and a lot of people in our business think it's more. Uh, now, but uh, what my perspective is, uh, there's no way to quantify that. Number one, but number two, I doubt it. The, but the difference is that because of social media and the anonymity of social mm-hmm. media, people will write things about you and to you that they would never say to your face. Thousand percent. And so, you know, if you think, well, I never used to get this criticism before. Yeah, that's because somebody would have to say it to you. Right. You know, and I've I've only ever had one or two people ever in my 30-whatever years of doing hockey and my 40-whatever years of being in broadcasting, I've literally had, I don't know, two or three people actually say to my face, hey, man, you know what, you might be a nice guy, I don't know, but on the air, you suck. I hate the way you call the games. I hate the things you say. You think you're really funny, but you're not. You sound arrogant. I just don't like you. The way you talk to people pisses me off. And literally in my 40-whatever years, I've only ever had – a couple of people say that to my face and that's fine. That's fine if people feel that way. I, you know, like, um, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you really do hit people in whatever emotional way Mm -hmm. they are. And, you know, some people are going to like it and Mm -hmm. some people aren't, but you do get more of that. Um, on social media than you did before social media, obviously, because you know Humpty Dumpty seventy five with a Humpty Dumpty emoji can say whatever he wants because you have no idea who he is, right? You know? From behind the safety yeah, of the screen exactly, and a keyboard, exactly. And, you know, yeah. there's there's a lot of geniuses with Wi Fi, um, but you know, so that that's just the way it is. And uh, probably the one way that Gord and I are different in that Gord does not engage with those people in any way. He doesn't. He hates that part of social media. Doesn't like it. I'm kind of the other way. I like to because I know I know that they one of the, part of the gratification that they get is they think they're getting to you, mm-hmm. and. I, I like to play with them because I find it fun and I don't get offended because I don't care if they don't like me. Right. I, 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 don't, I don't care if they call me names. I got so,
1: a 35-year resume that says yeah, I'm doing just yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, and... You know,
0: <laughs> my bosses think I do a fine job and right. they pay me for it. So that's the only opinion I need to have. <laughs> so uh, uh, sometimes, you know, when I'm going back and forth with, with guys, um, they think they've gotten to me because I'm responding to them. They don't realize I'm just messing with them because I don't care in any way what they think. Right. I don't, I'm not, I'm not hurt It's or a long offended. season, I'm killing yeah, some time <laughs> (laughs) And I I also know if you were anybody who knew about anything about what you're talking about, you would be doing my job or somewhere else or be in the media or you would have some clue as to what this actually is. And you don't. And... You know, when you're anonymous and don't even want to put your name front and center, why would I care about what you think? Why would I, you know, and, and half the time you go in and look and somebody's got like 27 followers, you if know. that, yeah, yeah, so, you know, and, and 20 of them are bots. Right. So like you and your seven friends and your mom, uh, you know, <laughs> don't like me. Okay, <laughs> boo-hoo, you know. Yep. So that's, that's kind of the way, and everybody's different, like I said. I, I heard the show that you did with Lee when Lee was on. Mm-hmm. Lee, you know, was famous around our station for never, you know, having a public face on Twitter because Lee knew, and Lee and I talked about this many times, Lee Lee knew that with his personality, he just was not going to engage in that and and some of the stuff he was going to take personally and he didn't want to put himself in that position. And I totally respect that. I I have several friends in our business um, who... Won't be like Gary Galley is not on Twitter, you know. Jim Houston, when he was calling, still before he retired, Mm -hmm. he had a Twitter account, but would never use it, never read it. Then there's lots of guys. There's lots of guys like that because they just don't see anything productive coming. Value in it, yeah. 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 So and now, now, you know, what is what is the dominant social media platform going to be? Like for you know, people are asking me, you gonna what are you going to switch? I said, well, I would be just as happy just to turn Twitter or X, just turn it off. Yeah. Because for me, it's only a a work tool. And for me, um, I have had to and still have to be on Twitter or X because our businesses, the NHL communicates with us in the media through um, media Twitter accounts. That's how, and and so do the senators. Like when the senators are having a media conference about something, they don't tell us in the media by sending all of us a text. It's through the SENS PR account, which is, you know, not every, anybody can get on it. It's, it's meant for just the media. And, yeah. that, and that's how they d- send out information. When, you know, when you're driving to the rink in the morning uh, on the day of a game, um, if the coach decides at the last minute to cancel the morning skate and just have a media conference, we find out about that on from Sen's Twitter, right. the, the, the media version of Sen's Twitter. Yeah. And so that's, that's how the NHL and that's how teams uh, communicate with the media. So um, I have to be on it. But if the league switches to... Blues, what is it, blue sky? Blue sky, yeah. blue sky, or they switch their emphasis to uh, to threads, then that's where I'll be going, and I will just shut down my Twitter account. I, I personally, I don't need it. I don't, you know, I, I'm not one of those.
1: I sort of envy you there. I've become a little addicted to it, and I find myself right now during the summer, especially like you don't have to be doing this, right? And I never have to be doing it. I mm-hmm. don't have a, but during a, during hockey season or while I'm watching a game, I love to see what other fans are saying. Yeah, I love to sure. interact and jump in there and, and but stuff. But, but now so in, in the heat of July, do I need to be on there? And yet I still find myself when I open my phone, tap, open, see yeah, what's happening. Yeah. And you're just like, this is, you got to put this down, man.
0: Yeah. It's, it's part of, but it's part of the rhythm of what you do because, yeah. you know, this this is media. The, yes. You know, what you're doing is, is media. So part of being in the media whether it's mainstream media or this, sure, uh, you have to be informed. Like the people who do this well are people who know what's going on, and the only thing, to, the only way to know what's going on nowadays is to be on social media because teams, leagues, players, managers, other media, mainstream media—it's the way they communicate their information. 100%. So it's not like you can do what you do and ignore all that stuff. If you ignore all that stuff, you don't know what's going on. And then this show is a show about not knowing what's going on, which is not a good it, show. It may already be. That, but, well, you know? <laughs> just the key is don't yes. admit that. Man. 100%. Just, yeah. just yeah. don't say, hey, by the way, I know, screw all of you. going to talk about that for an hour.
1: <laughs> um, this has been one of the most fascinating starts to an off season, maybe that the Sens have ever been through, given the nature of waiting on the ownership mm-hmm. thing to become official. Fans wondering what that meant for... Um, perhaps management of the team with Pierre Dorian and the coaching staff—were they in a holding pattern? How much authority did they have to mm-hmm. commit money? All these sorts of things. Uh, we can get into some of the specific um, player moves that the team has made, maybe in a bit. But I'm curious what you what it was like for you as someone who covers this team and watches it up close, as you know the the, the buzzer went on the final game of the season, and then sort of this. Uh, waiting game? What did it all mean? Sort of, how did you sort of read the way this all played out that got them to a place where they now have a a new majority owner?
0: Well, you know what? I I think, Matt, one of the things um, that was beneficial for me or any of the guys who've been around forever is this is the third time, you know, this is, if you look at ownership changes, you know, and one thing, even though the league has changed and obviously the dollar amounts have changed what has not changed is the way this league goes about approving ownership. And so whether it's in Ottawa or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, like everybody else, would have loved for this thing to be done bing, bang, bong, super, you know, a, a, and I hope for that. Yeah. But that was never my expectation because that's never been the case in, in this ownership or in any team's ownership when you're getting a new majority owner. When you're bringing on partners, that's a, that's a different, That's a you know, that's a different thing, but when there's a new majority owner. There's a certain process, and I I know people didn't feel like it at the time during this process, but compared to most others, this one was actually quicker. You know, if, if you look at how how long and how much due diligence has happened in other majority ownership changes and how long it's taken, and then committees go back to the Board of Governors, because, you know, uh, uh, it still amazes me some people don't realize, it, Gary Bettman doesn't decide who gets a franchise. The Board of Governors vote on who they want to be a partner. Right. And so at the end of the day, as the commissioner, he's going to make his recommendations to the Board of Governors, mm-hmm. and he's going to tell them what he thinks and what he recommends. But at the end of the day, the governors, the other owners in the league, they decide if you get into their club, not Gary Bettman. Right. So, uh, you know, hearing the, hear, you know, well, Bettman wants this, and, bat, you know, hearing, and I'm thinking to myself, everybody who's saying that just clearly doesn't understand how this process works. He's the guy who has to kind of guide and direct it. And he has to answer questions because he's the commissioner of the league. But at the end of the day, he knows exactly what his job is. And he has to go to the board of governors with his recommendation for an owner that he is fairly certain is going to get approved. You know, he can't, it's, it's, you know, like, and so figuring all those things out Takes time. And it takes longer now than it used to because this league was embarrassed a couple of times. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you go back to the Spano thing in yep. Long Island. and you know, Yeah, so they go through a whole bunch of processes where the due diligence that the league goes through is not the same as it used to be because of those things. And when they can't account for some group's claims and can't prove that what the guy is saying is actually true— then that slows the process down sure, yeah. because now they have to go a bit deeper. And, you know, so all all those things, you know, come into play. So uh, I was like everybody, I, I wish it had gone faster. But if you look historically, Matt, it, it, it probably went quicker than half of the other majority ownership changes in the
1: league as far as the process goes. What do you think, you know, you mentioned there who's going to be part of the club and the league's comfort level, right? Do you think... The, the fact that Michael Landlauer had already been part of the Montreal Canadiens ownership, was an alternate governor, like he, he knew a lot of these guys, he'd never been a majority owner before. Do you think that played a significant role in the fact that he was ultimately the guy that won out? Yes. Yeah.
0: I do. And because you know what, and I know some some people call it the old boys club. Sure. You can call it whatever you want, but the reality is in any business, any business, the NHL or any other business, you know, if you're letting someone into a multi-billion dollar club you have to feel comfortable with them yeah. not just their accounting not just their you know not just all their submissions and what their accounts have sent you you got to feel comfortable that that guy or that woman whoever the majority owner is that's trying to get into the club mm-hmm. understands what you think the league should be understands where you think the league should be going is is a similar mindset as far as how you think a league should be run Um, you know, the NBA is happy to have Mark Cuban now, but they weren't really happy with Mark Cuban (laughs) in the early years because a lot of other owners didn't like the things he said publicly about their league. You know, nobody else was getting half a billion dollar fines like he was, (laughs) but you know, teams that leagues don't want, owners don't want to go through that. So the fact that Andlauer was an alternate governor was very beneficial for him because sometimes being an alternate governor means something and sometimes it doesn't. In Montreal's case, the governor, um... Jeff Molson, wasn't a big fan of going to governor's meetings. You know, like he had other things going on. And so he felt very comfortable that Mike Andlauer would go. And Mike wanted to go Mm -hmm. because he knew that he wanted to one day own a team. So he knew that developing relationships with all those other governors, which for the most part is the president or the owner of the team or both. Um, So you're- Get that FaceTime in there. Exactly. And And so- you don't you don't get to buy an nhl franchise because you know the other owners but there's almost no one who gets an nhl franchise unless he has some kind of relationship with some of the important nhl owners because again they have to be very cautious about who they allow into their business right. you know and 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 again People think that's an NHL thing that's an any business thing you know that's that that is in almost any business where you have you know a majority owner taking over one of the key franchises mm-hmm. you know and a key franchise is, is any one of the franchises I yeah. mean you know like if you're if you're Tim hortons you know. They go through due diligence. Any Anybody who looks to buy, you, like you and I can't just say, yeah, I, I want to buy a Tim Hortons franchise. Where do I sign up? Right. That's not how the process works. There is a lot of review to find out if you would be the kind of person who should be allowed to own a Tim Hortons franchise. Yeah,
1: for all we know, someone walks into you, the the Tim Hortons you and I own, and we're running it like shit, and that's the yeah. last one they ever walk into. So you're now dragging yeah. down the whole company. Yeah, right? I, so. I
0: had a friend and his wife, and they've, they've since retired and sold their franchises. But at one time, they owned four of them, and I, I, I went through uh, many conversations with with Billy uh, about Bill Holdsworth was the guy uh, way back when. Back in the 80s, he was in the media relations with the Rough Riders and then went on to work for a couple of the national sports governing bodies. Anyway, him and his wife decided to go through the process, collect all the money they possibly could, borrow, and and basically got in the program and, and got a franchise. The first one they got was the one on Eagleson, and then they ended up over time owning four. Um, but yeah, the, the stuff that they went through had to go through um, to own a Tim Hortons. Yeah. You know, it's… People, and that's, and that's, you know, a donut store, Sure, you know, and so if you think that, you know, due diligence or those kinds of things or having relationships or quote unquote, the old boys club, uh, relationships still matter, yeah. you know, in anything, in anything, relationships still matter. And so my blunt, quick answer, when you asked, <laughs> did the relationships help Andlower? And I said, yes, absolutely. The answer is yes, absolutely. And there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that.
1: No. And you know, use that to your advantage, right? Yeah. There was a lot of money being thrown around here, a lot of interesting bids. Only one had this level. Of, I guess there was another one that had a former Penguins. Uh, I don't think he had, I can't remember his name. Now.
0: Well, the, mi- the minority owners, I think, yeah, uh, yeah
1: the, the brothers. Um, yeah, that's escaping me now. Yeah, me but, too. But, but uh, yeah. the, again, maybe would have helped, but but it, it in this case, the Kimmels. that's it. That's it, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm curious though, as we got towards the draft and then towards free agency, did you have any sort of sense or, or get a feeling at all that this offseason may have played out differently, had the sale process played out any quicker? And you just wonder, um, you know, in terms of knowing who the manager was going to be, what kind of budget you were going to have, uh, or did this sort of play out the way it was likely always going to?
0: Well, it played out the way it was always likely going to, because the time frame wasn't going to change. This is how long it takes to approve an owner, but had everything happened a lot faster, uh, it's unknowable, and yeah. and it's, uh, let me put it this way: it's unknowable for me because I don't know Mike Andlower. I've right. never met him. I don't have a relationship with him yet, so I can't tell you what my inkling would be, what he would have done. You know, there's there's you know you again you go back to social media, and you there's lots of theories about what he's going to do when he has control. You know. Um, is he going to replace the general manager? Is he going to replace the coach? Is he going to, uh, you know, hire a new? Well, he's going to hire a new president because the last one has resigned. Ryan, yeah. you know, and I and that that one looks, you know, pretty clear cut. I, th- I think that's going to end up being when he owns the team. It may well be the f- the first media conference he holds where he, you know, I'm the new owner and uh, introduces his new president. And most of us think that's going to be Cyril Leader because Cyril was advising the Ann Lauer group, right. during the whole process.
1: Knows the market, has no, done yeah, this before. You know, knows everything. Yeah. It's, you
0: know, like you couldn't get a better choice. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, um, the last president, uh, Anthony, I, I think he did a really good job in the situation he was in, mm-hmm. but could see the writing on the wall. So sure. resign, clear a path, you know, in a professional, a respectful way uh, for that those changes to take place and move on to uh, do whatever else he's going to do. And uh, I really liked Anthony. And I think he did the, the right professional thing. But him resigning and them not replacing him, I think that points even more to the fact that it is incredibly likely, and I haven't spoken to Cyril about this, but I think it's incredibly likely that Cyril probably is the next president. Yeah. And I think that would be a very good thing if that's what he wants to do. But, you know, had had everything happened quicker, that might be now. But I I, I know that... When you've gone through the process this far and, you know, through the whole process, Ann Lauer kept his mouth shut. There was no media leaks from him. And that's what the other owners want to see. They they, they don't want to see a lot of talking. They want to see you just let the process go, answer questions when asked of you by the league and by the bankers and by the family and by the board and whatever else, but none of this public stuff. And so when you get this far down the process, why would you start? Chipping away at the rules because right now he is not the owner. He no, is not the yeah. owner until the vote. So, you know, people saying, well, why don't they just, uh, you know, fire the general manager now? Well, the owner can. He's not the owner yet.
1: Well, and I, I don't know about you, Dean, but one of the things that seems interesting to me in terms of direction of the franchise during this particular off season is that there are still ways of making it known what you'd like to see happen here and how this is going to be run. And maybe none more obvious than the fact that the Melnick daughters are staying involved as minority owners. You know, is it that difficult to imagine them sitting down and then passing a note down to, you know, just in terms of laying out your budget or how this is going to play. And the only thing that we've seen in terms of significant, um, I saw some fans on, on Twitter talk about the Debrinket thing and the Mm -hmm. fact that he was leaving and, you know, what they had traded away to get him and then not being able to work out in a, what was going to be mm-hmm. an expensive long-term deal. To me, that didn't scream ownership. That screamed him wanting, not sure if he was willing to commit here, right? There yeah. was no indication that, that there was no money for him. Yeah, no, that no. wasn't the case.
0: Yeah. Uh, you, know, I, you know, you can, and, and Pierre Dorian has spoken to Anne Lauer many times. During, during the whole bidding process, all of the groups sure. got a chance to talk to Pierre and find out where his headspace was, know what's going on, contracts and stuff like that. And, you know, he was, uh, he was at the development camp watching and talking to Pierre. The fact that they're talking, is there's nothing wrong with that. That's, yeah. you know, that, that's fine. Him making a decision that Pierre is required to do. But you know, it's uh, a lot of these things, there's no skullduggery. It's just, you know, Pierre, what do you think about that? Pierre tells you, that sounds good to me. So, you know, you just, for for Pierre, for example, or anybody, you just go about your business uh,
1: until somebody tells you it's not your business anymore. That could not have been a fun spring for Pierre to have potentially four or five different bosses asking you questions, even if they're harmless questions, just checking in, seeing what your thought. I'm used to having one big boss here. I don't need potentially yeah. four different groups asking I, I, me what I yeah, think. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it though, in that um,
0: the truth and your opinion is the truth and your opinion. Yeah. So whoever's asking, you just tell them this is, this is the truth and this is my opinion about it. And they're either going to like it or not like it. And they're either going to decide in their own mind, you know, when, when I own the team or if I own the team, Pierre's going to continue as my general manager mm-hmm. or he's not. Yep. And so, you know, trying to tailor that. Uh, to each individual group that was talking to him.
1: But just in terms, I'm not even saying in terms of his employment, just in terms of your day-to-day job, like having that many eyes looking over your shoulders would feel a <laughs> yeah, little yeah. uncomfortable to me anyway. Yeah. I,
0: I See, I, I don't know about that yeah. because the other part of it is the assumption that somebody who owns a hockey team is an expert on hockey is is not, a, oh, to no. me anyway, is not a, like like the, I, I've heard owners at certain times ask questions or or have conversations with um, coaches and general managers. Mm -hmm. And um, you'd be surprised at times how unspecific those conversations are because uh, the owner's expertise – is always in something else. That's sure. how he got to be a billionaire. Pharmaceuticals yeah, or, he wants to own a hockey team because yep. it's fun. But that doesn't mean he understands what's going on. He's yep. asking questions, but it's not like you know. If he gives me the wrong answer, but the power play, he's got, <laughs> like they don't know what you know. They don't know. No. So you know, it's uh, by by and large, it's not you know technical hockey things that get general managers or coaches fired. It's a bunch of things. It's results. It's a feel. It's a you know, how is your interpersonal relationship? Is, is he a guy that you just get along with aside from the hockey? And if you don't, you know, you just sometimes- well, Maybe no get, more than,
1: yeah. you told me an extra $8 million in salary this year would make us a playoff team and we're yeah. not. But yeah. I yeah. understand money and yeah. we didn't make any yeah. this year. So. But,
0: you know, and then you, you then say, well, an extra $8 million would have brought us this. If this, 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 this and this hadn't happened. Right. And, yeah. you know, uh, some owners would say, don't give me your injury excuses. And other owners would say, yeah, I get that. You know, I understand how that was the plan. It was going that way. And then it- Got diverted because this happened, this happened, this. So it, it all depends. It's different every time. Every owner is different. But um, I've never, uh, put it this way, I've been doing this over 30 years, I've never met an NHL owner who's a hockey expert. Right. They're experts in something else and that's how they got to be billionaires. You've got to remember that still to this day, there's no owner in the National Hockey League who made his wealth being an owner. Right. You know, for all of them, this is something else they wanted, but it's not their primary business. They became a billionaire doing some, being an expert in something else. Mm-hmm. And so, a fan of hockey. Yeah, and a yeah. fan of hockey and a fan of, you know, being in the, you know, sports entertainment lifestyle as an yeah. owner. That's attractive. And, you know, and so – Guys, there's lots of people that, that want to do that, and that's great. But owning a team doesn't make you an expert on hockey. And to me, the best owners that I've seen are the ones that have a relationship with their president and their general manager and the coaches and the players. Hi, how are you doing? But doesn't meddle, doesn't get involved. Right. Stay into the war room. Yeah, well, it's not your area of expertise, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, owners, the owners that think they know something, those are usually the places where things don't go well, you know.
1: What have you made of the offseason that they have had thus far? Um, I think everyone is still of the opinion that the best is yet to come for this young core. We saw Tim Stutzla take a huge step forward this yep. year. I think obviously Josh Norris returning and, and getting a full healthy season out of him would make a huge difference. And so there wasn't a lot of of huge moves made. They did bring in Tarasenko. They've yep. kept uh, Hamannick around. They brought in, a I don't know, the Atlantic Division seems to be loading up on its heavyweights as McEwen makes his way in here to, I guess, match up with Reeves and Lucic in Toronto and Boston. What have you made so far of the moves that the team has made?
0: Well, the the biggest move obviously with Debrink being traded was a move forced on them, you know, like um, if he's not going to sign and yeah. I, you know, players have the right to, you know, that that's one of the things that, you know, even though he wasn't going to be a UFA right away, he was going to be soon enough. So mm-hmm. then you you just, you know, as a manager, um, you cannot get yourself in a situation where you lose an asset like that for nothing. Right. So, you're pretty much forced into making a trade. And the other reality is is that there's no question they didn't get as much for him as they paid for him. Right. But things in the marketplace change between then and now. You yep. know, When they traded for him, they were getting a guy who was a 40-goal scorer. Then they're trying to trade a disgruntled guy. Well, disgruntled is the wrong term. I'm not sure he was disgruntled just – didn't want to commit to. Yeah, uh, you to didn't auto- have much leverage. Yeah, right? yeah. But you know, you're now you're in the process of uh, trying to trade a 27 goal scorer. So For you know, two
1: years instead of one year. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, so
0: it, it was a, it was a different thing. So you know, you do the best you can.
1: Sure, Pierre's not
0: the first guy to be put into that situation, nope. and that's a reality that every team now faces when. You know, when, when things with arbitration and with the age of free agency and how UFA status comes so much earlier than it used to, used to people forget it. Used to, you couldn't be a free agent in this game until you were 32. Yep. You know, now <laughs> it happens so quickly, comparatively, um, that you, you cannot sit there and beat your head against the wall trying to figure out whether you won or lost every trade you make. Because every every general manager, the the good ones that are about 53% wins and the bad ones are about (laughs) 47%. Because, you know, like the marketplace is so fluid. And and sometimes, you know, you're in a situation, if you're a team like Toronto or a team that's been a cap team, a, a really good team and a cap team at the same time for this long, sometimes... Losing a trade is the best thing for your team. And when I say lose a trade, when you give up a player, trade a player away for what looks like a ridiculously low return, because your real goal as an organization is to free up cap space to cap get what space. you really need yeah. to push you over the edge. So That's that might be something. Yeah, right? exactly. Cap space So, is an asset. so you'll, you'll look on paper and you go, well, they, they gave up this to get that guy and then they traded him for this. Well, in this space and time that that doesn't matter they need that cap space to yeah. get this guy which is going to be pushing them over the edge to get a Stanley Cup not just make the playoffs it's you know so the determination the the uh, i i i sometimes chuckle when i'm seeing stuff again you know on social media when they're talking about, well you know here's the things he gave up and this is what he got so he lost well you know like I said, look at, look at the team, look at where they're at and look at what the situation is. And sometimes losing the trade is the best thing for your team because you get the space to make your team better in three months when you can make the other move that you really need to make to be a team that can go for the cup. And so, you know, you look at especially um, Ottawa, Ottawa, is going to become a team, I think, where that's going to happen more because you often see the better teams, the teams that are close to being true Stanley Cup contenders, those are situations they're forced into quite often because they almost all are hard up against the cap. Yeah. And the things they need are such specific things. You know, when you're like Toronto, where you've got a really good team, specifically what they need is such a fine line, you mm-hmm. know? And so uh, when you're at that stage, whether you, you know, gave up a second and a third to get that guy and you only got a fourth and a fifth back. Who cares if it ends up that you get the cap space to get what you really need to be very important for you in June. Right. You know? Yeah. So, and I and but I I understand that part of the fun of being a fan is, you know, getting on social media with each other and talking about these things and pretending you're a general manager. We all like to pretend we're general managers, but it's uh, it's often not nearly as clear-cut as some people seem to want to
1: make it. What did you make of uh of Vladimir Tarasenko being brought in, he's a guy who's had a couple of of down ish years. He'd been injured a little bit, but a guy yeah. who still looks like he's got some something to, in his legs, right? Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, uh, that that could end that could end up being a couple of things. It's you pretty know? low risk,
1: right? One year,
0: it is pretty low risk. Yeah. Um, but it could be a bunch of things. That's the thing, you know. Like it, it, if you can't say, well, if it turns into this, then it ends up being a good. There's a couple of things it could be, like. There are, again, these are rumors. I've never spoken to him. I have not talked to his agent. I don't know this. But there was some stuff in New York that he really wanted to sign in New York, like being in New York, but they just didn't have the cap space. Yeah. So if he's signing with Ottawa and he only wants to sign for one year so that he can get his numbers up to make his presence in New York worthwhile for the Rangers to make cap space for him, Hmm. that's good for him because he ultimately in a year would get to where he really wants to be, which is New York. Sure. The benefit for Ottawa would be, here's a guy who's super motivated yep. to increase his numbers. Yep. And so if you lose him after a year, at least you've got a solid year of a guy who was really motivated to play really well to get somewhere else. If If that's not truly the case, or if he changes his mind and finds that he likes the environment here and the team has some success and he plays a key role in that and his numbers get better and he enjoys the time, if the team wants to, then maybe he resigns. But like you say, there's there's very little risk, and you know you're you're getting you have the potential to get the potential to get um, about the same kind of um, production that you got out of Debrinket at less cost.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. Everyone keeps talking like this in uh, in a year the cap jumps pretty Mm -hmm. significantly, right? So maybe there is money for Tarasenko to return to New York, if that's what he wants to do. But also his $5 million comes off, Ottawa's cap. And maybe at that point, Ottawa has taken the step forward that they're hoping to. And they can now shop in a little higher rent district to grab an eight, $9 million guy that really puts them over the edge using that 5 yeah. million from Tarasenko and 4 million from, Getting, you know, Get a the guy bump. who's
0: 25 with those numbers yeah. instead of a
1: guy who's turning 32 with those
0: numbers. You're, right. You're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And so uh, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a good deal. I, you know, I, I look at Ottawa, I look at Ottawa this year and I think they're a playoff team. I, you know, I, I hmm. really look at the pieces. I think they're a playoff team. I was asked uh, the other day um, about the defense and I said, to me now, this defense looks like the kind of defense that teams that are going to the playoffs have. Right.
1: How would you line it up? How would you pair them off? Because to me, like when they brought in Chikrin, really good young player, like really impressive, happy to have him. But it it sort of created an odd alignment, right? When you have uh, Shabbat already on that side and Sanderson Mm -hmm. on that side. How would you ideally line them up to utilize their strengths?
0: Um, I think I would have Chukran play the right side with Shabbat because he's done that a lot. He's, play, he's played that a lot. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I think one of the realities on this team and any, every other team is that us in the media have to spend less time talking about pairs <laughs> and less time talking about who should play with who because the reality is that uh, nobody plays with the same guy all season long, right. anywhere no, it, it just doesn't happen yeah. with injuries, with different, with production issues, a whole bunch of things. You know those those ideas that you know this guy is this guy's partner. Um, th- that just doesn't happen anymore. Not for long stretches of time anymore. So f- for me, like especially in the preseason, the stuff that, that I watch is how I think guys play together uh, where it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I I don't look for the chemistry with another guy. I look for the pairs where there's no chemistry because I know that at some point, all of them are going to play with everybody. Right. At some point. So I I try to look at the ones where that's going to be a pair that the coaches want to stay away from, not the one they're trying to gravitate to. Right. Because – you know you you can you, you know you can play Shabbat with anybody, mm-hmm. you can play Sanderson with anybody, and it's going to be a decent pair because those two guys are guys who can play with anybody, sure you know, so is it better for you know for Sanderson playing with Zub, or is it irrelevant they're going to play with all of them, so for me as a guy calling the game, I wanted to try and determine which pairs I think they're going to try and stay away from where right it's it's something where they're gonna go you know i'll I'll have a pair that I don't particularly love to avoid having that pair that I hate right so it's it's kind of the other way around because they're they're all gonna play with each other so which is the which is the pair they want the least you know which is the the matchup where they want you know we really don't want that guy to be playing with that guy you know like because that's now become more of a thing than who should be a partner because like I said on this team and every other team in the league now they're they always play with each other. It's it's like in Edmonton, you know. Ask the people in Edmonton, who who plays with Conor McDavid? Who cares? Well, everybody. <laughs> if, if, yeah, if, depending if he, on the moment. Yeah, if you go in, if you go on NHL.com and you go into the uh, the stats part and the play-by-play, which gives you, it's not a, a, an audio thing, it's yeah. actually who's on the ice. Because yeah. all the jerseys are chipped now. So the league has that thing where the computer tells you who's on the ice together. Yeah. If you go through the entire night, with the exception of usually – uh, the fourth line, left and right wingers. <laughs> Connor McDavid will play with every forward on the team. So who are his wingers? You know, tonight they might start, and Drysaitel's on his wing. But then during the game, Drysaitel may be spending almost all of his time centering the second line, except mm-hmm. on the power play. So the whole idea of you know where you start is less important as how much time do you spend. Like when uh, I've I've had arguments with people talking about you know who's the who's the third line this on the team and I'll say well don't don't worry about lining getting a, a dry board and writing the lines that's how the game starts for sure but i said if you want to know who's the fourth or the third forward the first forward I said just go to ice time average ice time coaches play their best players yep. more so you know like we were having this conversation about drake batherson uh, just the other day and Said, you know, like he he may well be the third line right winger. I said, Yeah, but he's very strong chance he's still gonna have top six minutes. And he said, Well, how can you have top six minutes if you don't play in the top six? Because he's still gonna get power play time. So if yeah. you look at the minutes that he's on the ice in the game, he might technically be the guy who is written in as the third line right winger. But after the game, if you look at the times, you go well, he was the fourth most used, so he would be the number four forward on the team. right? You know, so it's, it's, it's less about... To me,
1: like Victor Hedman is the classic example yeah. of like, they throw him out there in every situation. Yeah. Sometimes it's with the third pair guy, Sometimes it's penalty killing. Sometimes it's power play. Sometimes we're down, so we're putting him out there with another offensive guy. Sometimes we're up here. Yeah. He's just going to play with everybody because he's our guy. Yeah. Right? So and, people look at his numbers and they go, wow, Victor Hedman
0: is 27th in the league in even strength time on ice. Yeah, but if you look at his total time on ice, right. you know, he's number five or whatever he is. Because yeah. you're right. They play him on the power play. They play him shorthanded. They double shit, you know, like, so yeah, his 5v5 time might be low, but it's, that, that's, that's not the total value that the coach puts on him. It's like, you know, when Connor Brown was here, you could tell the coach loved Connor Brown. Yep. Connor Brown was, for a time, the third line right winger in this team, but almost always the second most used player as far as average time on ice amongst the forwards. Wow. played them in all situations. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the thing I encourage people to look at instead of, you know, when, when we tweet out, I guess X out now, the, <laughs> the lines from the morning skate on a game day and people lose their minds over somebody who's playing on the third line left wing and they lose. their oh, just wait till they play the game and look at the minutes and you'll know who plays end up playing where. This is a starting point. Lines are a starting point. No, it's and true. but people just sometimes just go insane. <laughs> he should be fired. I can you telling me an NHL coach would put him to? Well, well, these are line rushes in the morning skate. Like settle down. It's you know, like <laughs> just calm, <laughs> calm down. You know. And at the end of the game, look at average time on ice. That's it's the simplest. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of really really good um, analytic metrics. Analytics has come so far mm-hmm. in the last five to seven years. There's so many really good indicators and there's so many really good ones. But lots of times for these simple rudimentary discussions, you don't need to have some massive, you know, analytical breakdown of, you know, you just look at how, you want to know where you, where anybody stands, you know exactly where they stand based on how much the coach plays them. Yeah. And, you know, it was the same, it was the same argument last year. I would, I would get in with people uh, about Eric Branstrom, you know, like, for some reason, people think you know if you're not waving the pom poms and you're not cheering for him that you hate him. I, I I don't hate him. He's a fantastic guy, but my my comments about Eric Brandstrom was, you know, like you talk about you pick out certain analytics and you say he's the best defenseman on the team. The eye test with anybody who actually watches hockey, a coach, a manager, player says that's not true. Right. And there are reasons why when he was playing, why he was the lowest minute count defenseman of the six they played. And some of the things that were not analytical breakdowns, but things that teams look at individually were containment issues. Like that might not be an analytic that generally the, you know, but a team will look at, you know, the way we play, we expect players, our defensemen, to be able to box out here. Mm -hmm. And so your own analytics guys will take note of, Failed to do that. Successful doing that. You know, get eighty percent at that. You know, and so those analytics can point to a certain direction on your own team, and sure. they might not be available online to every for everybody no, to see. Most of them aren't the top but, ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, yeah. on online. For just any one of us just to go online, by and large, you, we can access, you, me, anybody, we yeah. can access about 400 data points Sure. to be able to look at different things and break them down. The teams have access to about 4,000 data yes. points. And one of the reasons why every team in the league has... Some form of analytics department, some they outsource them, some they have outsourced and they have a few of their own people that mm-hmm. look at specific things that are team specific. And some teams have all of their own people and complete departments under themselves. But whichever way you do it doesn't really matter. It's just what data you're looking for. But every team with their own people are often looking for specific data points that pertain only to the style and the system that they play. So those things are important to and I've gone through this when borvietsky was here, you know, and how, you know, the analytics community just buried him. But on this team with Guy Boucher, they played a lock system where they needed that left side defenseman to step up and make contact in the neutral zone so they would score players based on contact? Did you slow the guy down? Did you stop the guy? Did you make contact? Did you make the contact before the blue line? Did you force him to dump it to the other corner? Because what they wanted to, what they were trying to force was they're trying to force physical pressure on that left side in the neutral zone on the right winger who has possession or the centerman to force him to dump it to the other side of the ice so it would end up in Eric Carlson's corner. So they wanted, even when Eric wasn't on the ice they wanted to keep forcing teams to dump it to the opposite corner so that when Eric was on the ice, the puck would end up in his corner. So other analytics made Bor- Borwiecki look like a horrible player, but within the team, he was their number one guy on forcing the play that they're trying to achieve. Right. So who's right? You know, He was doing exactly what the team wanted to do, and when people go, why do they keep putting that guy out there? Well, because in their own team-specific analytics for what they're trying to achieve, he was the best one they had on the left side. It, they had other players, other defensemen who were better overall sure. defensemen, but to do this job, but to do this job, yeah. they wanted that. They wanted the puck as often as they could on Eric Carlson's stick, so they developed that thing to try and force that. Right. So, but you tell people, they go, "Well, that can't be true." <laughs> well, no, it is. It is true. It's just a. It's just a team-specific analytic that their own people look at because that's something as a team they're trying to achieve and there might be other teams that play a different style where they don't keep that stat because they don't care it's not how they play it's not a play they're trying to force mm-hmm. you know so but but nowadays the analytics the analytics are are so good and cover so many things there's there's still areas where I'm not sure you're ever going to be able to find an anal- analytic that totally encompasses you know momentum and emotion and um, fights, for example, you know, fights are way down in the league. Fight, fighting nearly almost doesn't even exist. Yeah, But if you talk to players, players don't want it eliminated because right or wrong, and you can disagree with their mentality, but players like the idea that there's someone on their team who can take care of that. And again, you can, you can debate it all you want, but the guys who play the game, they want to have somebody on their team who can take care of that. And it's still a part of the game. So analytics, I, I don't believe they have found a way to measure you know, how that helps a team. And I don't know how you would. No, like sort of a, an adrenaline yeah, measure yeah. in the
1: body or something. But I you know don't. what?
0: I'll say this, Matt. If you look at how far – like again, in the last five to seven years, if you look at how far analytics has come, I am not going to – I'm not going to say it's impossible to measure that because they may find a way so like some of the some of the stuff out there um that we get to see and we get to read yeah. is is unbelievably precise yeah. and unbelievably well thought out it's just sometimes people make wild over overriding assumptions based Uh, on two analytics. And so this player is the best at this because of these two things. No, (laughs) it's, it's it's not. And it's never that simple,
1: but. Like I fully subscribe to the analytics thing. I love it. I find it fascinating to read about at the same time, there is a certain element of it's a piece of frozen rubber bouncing around on yeah. ice with guys this happenstance. running around yeah. on knives yeah, right absolutely. like there is a certain element maybe more so in hockey than in any other sport of luck that goes into it too right like you there, every year there are teams you can tell this is going to be a good team this is going to be a bad team and it usually plays out that way but night to night sometimes things just yeah takes crazy care of the sure. glass and For sure. There's no analytic that's going to measure that. There's,
0: right? a, there's a, a lot of times too. I can tell you with the coaches that I know, there's a lot of times where the way that coaches utilize analytics, they do in their prep work going in to look for tendencies. But a lot of times also what what the how the coaches use analytics as a hockey person, as a lifetime hockey person, they know what their eyes see and they know what they think. And so they go to the analytics to see if the analytics support that. Right. And if they don't, then they'll question themselves. And Am I really looking at this? Right and, objectively, and, some, and yeah. yeah, objectively, and some coaches will do that more than others, and mm-hmm. some won 't do it at all, and others harp and dwell on it, yeah. um, but like i can I can tell you in ottawa there 's an analytics breakdown that the coaches get between each period before every game and after every game, like mm-hmm. they are they are looking at analytics during the intermissions, That analytics are an act an active part. Of how Ottawa coaches. So when people say, "Oh, they do they do this crap they like they should just look at the analytics. They they, they look at the analytics, yeah. and and to be honest with you, um, most coaches do. Some are the other way around. I, I know about some who just say, "Listen, give that stuff to the assistant coaches. I don't want to see it." <laughs> uh, you know, like there are still some of those guys in the league. Sure, there there are. I think to their own detriment, but I think they are. There are still some in the league, but. Um, it's it's a part of every team depending on how they use it and how much they sure. use it. But, but it's a part of the game now and it's never going away. People who say, well, you know, this is going to run its course. No, it is not going to run its course. It's only going to get better and better and more accurate and more accurate. And the number of metrics that they're going to be able to incorporate into different kind of conglomerate metrics is going to be one of the things I think that pushes it forward where you can find – the cause and effect connections from one analytic to yeah. another and they'll be able to connect certain groupings of analytics to give you a deeper impression of something else. That stuff is already going on now and I think that's only going to increase. And it, it, it makes the game better because now with this generation, Matt, the players, the young players coming in, mm-hmm. their minds, they're open to this and so they want to see them too. And in some cases, the coach's job is to Keep the players away from too much analytics, where they're, where they're thinking the game in, instead of in, a, in, a, in an emotional reactionary way, they're trying to be
1: too. Well, like my course is terrible, so yeah. I'm just going to take a bunch yeah. of extra shots to give yeah. it a boost. I'm going to dump today. it in yeah. over the goal yeah. from the blue line. Right. There,
0: it went up. You know, yeah. like there's, there's that balance you want to play. but And there's some, there's some players, like anything else, there's some players who want nothing to do with it. You know, sure. Yeah. Like they just, they just don't, I'm going to play my game, going to go there doing my coach tells me and try and win the game. And I'm not looking at, I'm not doing the math. Right. So you're going to get all those different mixes, but what it isn't going to do, it's not going to go away. No,
1: I'm with you on that. Uh, we've been talking a lot of analytics, a lot of metrics. You said a few minutes ago, you're pretty sure that the Sens are uh, are a playoff team this year. I'm curious what Dean Brown's metrics went into who's fallen out, you know, how's the division mm-hmm. going to shake out this year?
0: Well, I think, uh, Washington's in trouble. I think it's uh, as much as, uh, you know, um, I was complete, a part of the group of people who was a hundred percent wrong about Boston last year. Well, me too. Uh, I'm, yeah. Well, how many of us, you know,
1: I didn't know if they'd make like fall right out, but I thought they'd take a step back and instead they yeah, go like all time. I know.
0: <laughs> but again, you know, this may come back to bite me, but, uh, that team without, and not even just playing, without him in the dressing room with no Bergeron. Yeah. It's a very, very different animal. Hundred percent. You know, it, it it just is. So I have questions about Boston. Um, so you know, th- there's there's there's, there's going to be some gaps, and I think Ottawa uh, ultimately is going to be in a situation where they're going to have to deal with Buffalo and Detroit. You know, in this in this next era we're going into, you're going to see teams that have been dominant teams start to have to force themselves to go into rebuilds, yep. and you're going to see the Ottawas and the Detroits and the Buffaloes uh, assume those positions. I think right now, if I had to rate them out of those three, I think that Buffalo's the closest, then Ottawa, then Detroit, but they're all very close to each other. I think so. And I I think for Ottawa, um, I think it may well just come down to what it's been the last couple of years, injuries and goaltending. You know, this team has taken so many steps forward in so many other areas. And most importantly, their core young group, has gotten better every year. And I think they're mm-hmm. now at that place where they have enough experience. They're not children anymore. They certainly want to, and they're ready to win. And if they can get consistent goaltending and no injuries of any major sort in that position, then I think this is a playoff
1: team. Did uh, I guess I didn't mention that earlier on. Did you like the Corpus Allo signing?
0: I did, but yeah. you know what? I'm very, I'm very careful now because uh, I have been 100% wrong on the last two. <laughs> you know i th- I, th- I thought I thought i you know I think we talked about it. I thought the Matt Murray signing was fantastic you know here's a Stanley Cup winner who's going to come sure. in, wants to be here long term, wants to be the guy on the ground floor to build this team. Yep. I just had no idea about the fragility uh, yep. I just had no idea that you know it and Toronto's found that out too sure he just, have. he just uh I don't know if it's his body or his mind or both, but he, he just appears to be a guy that's too fragile to be counted on to be able to play, which yeah. is really sad for him. I, you know, I I, I hope uh, whatever hel- uh, help he needs, either physically or mentally or both, uh, that he gets it because away from hockey, he's got kids and a family and you want him to not struggle with issues down the road, whether it's his body or his mind or both. Right. But from a from a team standpoint... He's a good goaltender when he's healthy, but he just cannot stay healthy enough to be a difference maker on any team he's on anymore. And you know, the Leafs are now dealing with that and put him on long term. But I I didn't expect that. And when they when they extricated themselves from that situation, I thought that was
1: it was a nice piece of business. It
0: was a really nice piece of business by Pierre Dorian because I got to be honest with you, I thought to myself, how the hell are they going to get anyone to take that? You know, like. And yeah, I didn't think it'd be us. Yes, yes, I, yeah, your, your Leafs, I didn't, I, you know, I, I didn't, didn't, see, it I didn't see it coming, but, yeah. um, uh, and now I think they wish they had seen it coming. Yeah. hundred percent. But then, you know, when they, uh, when they get to and go, Hey, a veteran guy, great. It just came off an all-star season. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then again, he can't stay healthy Did long enough to, you know, when he played, he was pretty good. Did he sign somewhere this summer? Uh, yeah, he is in LA, I think.
1: Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, but I think it's a one year. I'd yeah. have to double check, but I think he signed a one year. So he's at that stage now where people want to see, can you play sure. a season? You yeah. know? But I thought here he was going to be the perfect guy, you know, him and Forsberg, a great tandem, a couple of guys who are not kids who can, you know, be in there, give them consistent goaltending, yeah. and then you then you see where the kids can take you up front. And that didn't happen. So now the signing of Corpusalo everything tells me that's great. The hip issues that he's had apparently are long behind him. Mm-hmm. So hundred percent healthy.
1: It's a little long. I don't like betting on goalies as yeah. you just outlined why. I, yeah. Goalies and, and bullpens, they're yeah. voodoo. You don't spend money on them. You don't commit to them long-term. I but. guess, <laughs> but
0: so I have no idea. Um, I'm optimistic because I like him as a player. I like, I, I like, he's he's a good goaltender, but again, you know, if they go through what they've gone through the last two guys where injuries just yes. destroy the whole thing, then you have to look at, uh, you know, how do you, how do you feel about, uh, you know, a Forsberg-Sogard combo? And I say, I'm fine with that. But as they found out last year and the year before, what if you lose four? Right. You know, yeah. and, and that's the thing where you go, you know, how does any organization, would they end up using this year? Seven goalies, eight yeah. goalies? Unreal. What, what organization plans, has plans you can't. You cannot to go, survive that? yeah, to go to your, you know, you're, you're trying to win games down the playoff stretch. And you're going to the number seven goalie in your organization that you only signed three weeks earlier <laughs> to try and bolster your AHL team, except the guy you were going to use to him to replace in the AHL, he gets injured too. And yeah. you know, like I thought a guy like Dylan Ferguson did a great job when he came up in the two games that he played. But my God, when you're an NHL team and you've gotten down to the point where you've got so many injured guys that this is somebody that, who you have to try and put the ball in his court to carry it, to try and fight for a playoff spot, that's a hard place for the goalie to be in. That's an unbelievably hard spot for the organization to be in. But what do you do? You know, like what do you, what do you do? So there's just no overcoming that. Yeah, there is. No, there isn't
1: for this team or or any any team. Any team, no. Yeah,
0: you're just, it's not, it's not happening. Yeah. And I think it, I think what makes it more difficult is, is that, uh, you know, you look back and you, you see what, what was happening in Minnesota with, you know, uh, Gus Gustafson the bus.
1: just gets a new deal here. And he here. just gets a new
0: deal. And and happy for him. Sure. Happy for him. But again, you know, I, I some some people say that, ah, oh, Dean, you're just, you're just arse covering for the team. <laughs> go, well, no, no, I'm not. I, I don't work for the team. But my my point is people should remember back to the conversations we were having when Gustavson was here and when Gustavson was moved from here. And the discussions were at that time saying, if he's the guy who's supposed to be your next guy, is he consistent? He's not even consistent enough to be the starter in Belleville. And you want to think that he's going to be consistent enough to be the starter in less than three years in Ottawa? Right. How how can you gamble on that? But he goes to Minnesota, gets his career straightened around, gets his head screwed on right, and has a great, great year last year. That turns into a great contract this year for him. Good for him. But let's all remember the conversations we were having at that time and space about that player and the way he was playing then. Because at, at some point, You do have to have your experts go, I think he can become this. I think he, but it's, it, it, it is all at the end of the day, it is all basically educated guessing, Yep. but guessing is the big word. And so in this case, in this case, um, it's worked out where the player actually has come out of that and he's developed into a starting NHL goalie. Great for him. But this idea that, you know, the scouts, the scouting in the in the organization, the general manager, the assistant, everyone, all of you, the coaches, you all failed to recognize what he was. That's, to me, unfair. It's just, this happens all the time all around the league where guys look like they're just, it's not going to happen. And then something happens and over time it does. And be happy for the player. Uh,
1: maybe it is a simple, when we call it a change of scenery, often it is just a, a coach on a new team says something to you in a way you've never had it said to you before and it just clicks. And yeah. Sometimes the change of scenery isn't, I have to get out of where I am now. I'm not like that they're in a bad situation. No, it's just a different situation. Yeah. Sometimes triggers. Or or you're playing in the minors and you look
0: at the depth chart of the team and you go, I'm never getting out of the minors no yeah. matter how well I play because I got this guy ahead of me, this guy, this guy, and this guy. And so you never get to your best game because you're playing with a fatalistic attitude that you're never going to get out of the AHL and into the NHL. Right. Sometimes that happens, and a new, and sometimes a change of scenery puts you someplace where you can see that there's a path for you to get where you want to go in this organization, that didn't look as 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 good an opportunity in the last organization. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, but like every time a player leaves and. Um, has something happened in them positive somewhere else, I feel happy for the player, but it doesn't automatically I look at who in the organization failed. The, the team personnel guy did he fail? Did the goaltending coaches, did they fail? Did they not? It it happens with with every team and this I this idea, you know, it's the same with young players. When you've got a guy who's a first-round draft pick and, uh, you know, and he plays 10 games and they send him down to the minors, then halfway through the season they bring him back up, he plays five games, they send him back down, and people are getting all upset. There's no linear path to the NHL, number one. Number two, being sent to the AHL doesn't mean someone failed. It doesn't mean the player failed. It doesn't mean the guy who drafted him failed. It doesn't mean the scout failed. It just means in this player's road to the NHL, there's some ups, there's some downs. There's next to no straight line path. And some guys take longer than other guys. And some guys never make it. And some guys make it quick. They're they're all different. But going to the AHL, most of the best players in the league have at some point— played in the AHL. Not all. There's, there's some like you know, Brady Kachuk who's never played a game in the a- AHL. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely players like that. Eric Carlson played in the AHL, for right. heaven's sake. You know, like you, you, you go through most teams, you know, most teams, their best players spent time in the AHL. It's, 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 not, it's not a bad thing and it's not a badge of failure. It's part of the process. It is the best league outside the NHL. Yeah.
1: It is. For development especially. Absolutely, this is get, absolutely, get in there and learn how to play the Ex- pro game.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So it's just some of those perspectives that sometimes I just I I don't I don't get and I I realize some of them are spurred on by the emotion of being a fan where you're angry about something and you look at a player and you think he's doing great so why would they send him back down? Well, maybe professional coaches and scouts see other things where they say Maybe he needs to work on that, and there's no rush here, you know. Uh,
1: it's, uh, well, maybe no more complicated than even looking at like the draft is a different animal. But if you remember the night they selected Brady Kachuk, oh, that was people lost their minds, franchise hey, destroying moments. What are you talking Phillip about? Philip Zadina should have been the guy, and now you look at the careers they've had, and I, I was one of them. I thought Philip Zadina would have been the better choice, and yeah. you sit here a few years later going.
0: Well, glad
1: they weren't listening to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, that, but that's the way it is when you're drafting 18-year-olds. You know yep. what I mean? Like one of the reasons there's a higher success rate in the NFL, the way their draft works, is you're drafting players that are older. So by the time they're draft eligible, there's yeah. been more of a sample about what they are. And for many of them, especially in the NFL, they get to the league with their man strength. You know, most players in the NHL who are drafted at 18 don't have their man strength and, you know, they just haven't developed as a man yeah. until, you know, they're 21, 22, 23. Well, in the NFL, by the time where their college eligibility, their years of college are over and they transition to the NFL after the draft – or if, even if they didn't get drafted, mm-hmm. they're going in at 22. They're they they're already at that stage physically where they can compete. That's why the success ratio of first-round draft picks in the NFL is higher than it is in the NHL. When you're drafting 18-year-olds,
1: yeah. you, you know. Well, to me, that's, baseball is the most interesting one for that, where you could draft a kid out of high school or out of college and you're like, okay, this kid who's in college right now, he's pretty good, but he's probably just about topped out. Like this is what he's going to yeah. be. That kid- who's still only 18 years old and he's throwing 92 right now, he might turn out to be, yeah. what, he might also flame out completely and, you know, get married next month and decide he yeah. doesn't care about baseball yeah. anymore. Like the gamble is much higher, but it, it's just interesting in a sport where you see both, right? You have the freedom to draft from both places at the same time. And the gamble is fascinating to see, you know, like you said, a kid who's still really young versus a kid who's, you know, he's 22 now, but he's, probably done develop, not done developing, but you know what I'm saying. I don't want, yeah. Closer to the finish. I
0: I don't want, I don't watch a lot of baseball, but. We've had that conversation. But but I, I still, I, I, I do find it entertaining when I, I hear like I'm flipping through and I'm watching the experts talk about a kid that's just been drafted who's playing high school baseball and i i just get a kick when they say well you know you look at it, you know you project him out and you say you know in 5 to 7 years this is a kid who can challenge for a, a, you know an everyday spot on a on a major league roster and i'm thinking to myself you're you're drafting a high schooler and you think you can predict what's going to happen in the next 5 to 7 yeah. <laughs> years in a, you know like i i just find that that's that's the most painfully um, naive, na- well, naive. <laughs> number one, and, and optimistic sure. perspective that they have when you're when you're drafting players that are that young, and how much road they have to cover to be legitimately considered, you know, MLB prospects. So many things can happen. Yeah, well, you talk about NFL,
1: the success rate of a first round draft pick in the NFL. Versus the NHL, how about baseball? It's incredibly low oh, yeah. in baseball. Well, like because it's, of exactly what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, just they're gambling a lot of You're the time. Drafting and, a
0: kid who's in grade eleven. <laughs> right. Think about when you were in grade eleven.
1: <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. I to have some things get my attention oh. before going to the gym. Does here? <laughs>
0: I'm 61 years old, and I'm complete. I'm super dumb. I was. I was only. A, I. I was. I was a fraction. Yeah. Smarter than I am <laughs> now in, in grade 11. I mean. like... You know, you're you're, you're at that dumbest of dumb ages, you know, lots of testosterone and very little IQ. Um, Yeah, (laughs) it's a great competition. (laughs) You know, like seriously, it's like, you know, and you're drafting a kid at that age and and then people go, well, how could you not know? You're in the business of knowing. Well, there's no knowing. There's experience, gut feel, professionals who look at signs and try and give you the best chance to make the right picks. But how do you know? Uh, how How do
1: you know? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you before we get you out of here, Dean, about, uh, what happened, I guess it'd be a month or two ago now over at TSN 1200 at, uh, at your employer. Um, look, we've seen this happening more and more across sports media in Canada. This time, uh, it hit pretty close to home with uh, people that I know, you know, very well. Yep. Um, you know, I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts in general on on what happened, how it went down, you know, working with those guys over the year and just, and what it means for where our industry's headed.
0: Yeah. Just sad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sad, Matt. And part of the reason that it's sad is that, um, there was nothing abnormal now about the way things happened at our station, uh, because that is commonplace across the country. Um, you know, the media business is changing dramatically, um, you know. What we're doing right now is a big part of that, you know, uh, diffusion in the marketplace where there's so many different places to hear so many different voices Mm -hmm. and that pulls things away, you know, before podcasts, and this kind of thing Mm -hmm. existed. If you wanted to hear sports talk or be involved in sports talk, there was one place you went and there was only one place to go. It's not like that now. And our business now, you know, whether it be Bell or Rogers or, or anybody else, um, is not run by broadcasters. It's run by business people now. Yeah. That, and that's the biggest single difference in our business now, um, where it's run and decisions are made oftentimes not based on the quality of the broadcasting or the loyalty of the employee or the, you know a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's based on the fact that this is a business and it's got to be treated that way. And the fallout is that people who do what we do are the ones that are part of the chain where when someone whips it at the top, this is the snap at the bottom and we're no different from anywhere else, you know, like, uh, and it's, it's, it's just, it's just hard for someone like me who's been in the business this long because in, in any, in any business, there's going to be people that you like, people that you're friends with, people mm-hmm. that you don't, people that are just teammates, but really not your cup of tea. Yep. And there's all those things. But for me at the end of the day, I just hate seeing anybody lose their job, whether it's in this business or any business, because for the most part, when you lose your job, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your whole family. It affects your life. When people say it's not not personal, it's business, the business affects me personally because that's how I fund all the personal things in my life and support all the people in my life and my kids and my wife and my mortgage and all those other things. So, you know, you look at all the people in this country in our business who uh, have been victims of this, um, None of them deserved it. You know, every, every one of them was a contributing member to this industry, but the industry has changed. And that's the cruel part of this business is that, you know, there was a time in this or any other business where you could say, well, the guy kind of deserved it. Bit of a slacker, really not doing much or not smart enough for that job in the first place. I'm not sure why they ever gave him that job or a whole bunch of things sure. where competency or loyalty or urgency or reliability. Those were all factors. Mm-hmm. That now is not as much the case it's you know oftentimes now the people making the decisions about which people get laid off have never met or listened to well, their salary or seen. just fits the yeah. number we're
1: looking to cut yeah today.
0: exactly yeah. you know it's it's work ratios it's it's a whole bunch of things it's advertising revenue over work ratios and how many you know, full time and what 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 gets figured in as far as you know severances. There's a whole, there's a whole formula that I am unaware of how it works because I I cannot ex- explain or figure out the rhyme or reason why this guy and not that guy or yeah. this woman or not that woman or yeah I, and I can't. I just know that it's sad and I, the other thing I know is that it's not changing anytime soon because this business continues uh, to evolve and change um, and that's that's not going to change and so I think there's. More pain down the road for um, people in our business, and I and I know lots of people Matt, in our business who've been in this for a long time, who are now looking for things outside of the business. Yeah. Not because they don't love doing this, but because they don't see a long-term future in our business, and I f- I find that to be a shame. I like I I because uh, this this industry this business has been so good to me, and I've loved it. I've loved it my entire career, but I'm closer to the end than the beginning. So but it's it's just those are the sad parts and and how it's altered our business and the good- the good side of it is one of the very few good sides is you know when you turn on the radio or you turn on t s n or sportsnet or you know r d s or t v r or anything there's still lots of great broadcasters in this country still doing their thing and still doing it really well yep and and that's a good news story, but the thing that hurts is there's lots of others who are just as good who don't get to keep doing it. And that, that hurts. And that, that hurts
1: hundred percent. Couldn't have said it any better. Uh, Dean, I appreciate you coming in. I know we've, uh, done this every summer now for the last couple of years. I sure. always appreciate you making time and.
0: We should do something different and actually do one in the middle of winter as well.
1: See, I'd be down to do that. I'm always, I, I, I know they keep you pretty busy on the road and yeah. everything. We'll look for a long homestand, maybe get you back in here. You know,
0: I'll spend, I'll spend an hour less talking to Gord and an hour talking to you. It's just well, Maybe next time you
1: bring Gord with you, we'll, we'll get the parries We're never in here seen here or or the something. same place at the same time. <laughs> okay. <dude. laughs> I like that. Um, I appreciate you coming in, Dean, uh, and uh, interrupting some of your summer. But uh, we're looking forward to hearing you on the call again, uh, starting uh, pretty soon. We're just a few weeks out from training camp, yep, now. So can't wait. yeah. So, thanks so much for coming in. Anytime, Matt. Thanks for having me again. For uh, for Dean Brown, my name is Matt Robinson. Thank you so much for checking out this edition of Tall Can Audio. You can find all the uh, all the social media links, everything that we got coming up in the show notes at tallcanaudio.com or wherever you're hearing us right now. We'll wind this one down and catch you all next time. That's it. I cannot work under these conditions. If anybody wants me, I'll be downstairs at McDougal. All call the weekend guy. I don't care.